Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams, and this is the 13th episode of Dart Against Humanity. Typically, I do my episodes on average about five days apart. Today's a special occasion. Today isn't the 30th anniversary of the release of Public Enemies, It Takes a Nations of Millions to Hold This Back, and Big Daddy Kane's Long Live the Kane. I repeat, today is not the 30th anniversary of the release of Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold This Back, or Big Daddy Kane's Long Live the Kane. But that's only one reason why I'm doing this episode today. The reason I'm doing this episode is because journalism is in the toilet, especially music journalism. And one of the crucial reasons why is because we don't value accuracy. We don't value research. We don't value things that would make it necessary to put forth the time, the man hours, to actually do thorough research. Because the economics aren't there. If you do a thoroughly researched, well-written article, the amount of time that it took for you to do it isn't worth it. Because who's going to pay you to do it? First of all, which outlet's actually paying you for these pieces? I've gone back and forth several times recently talking about how I haven't seen 30th anniversary pieces for albums like... uh, Paul Abdul's Forever Your Girl, which was actually the 30th anniversary, was on the 13th. Uh, I didn't see a 30th anniversary piece for Guy's Guy album, their debut album, which anniversary was on the 13th. I didn't see any 30th anniversary pieces for New Edition's Heartbreak album, besides mine. I wrote mine because I knew I wasn't going to see any. I didn't see any for Don't Be Cruel, which is ridiculous because Don't Be Cruel is one of the most important Albums and pop music of the past 30 years. Forget just black music, pop music, period. He became the king of R&B, Bobby Brown, off this album. He changed the trajectory of solo acts in black music that is still being felt to this day. Nobody wrote a piece. I'm talking about outlets like I didn't see anything from Billboard. Nobody pitched anything to Billboard. I didn't see anything on Complex. Did no one pitch anything to Complex? I didn't see anything on Noisy. I didn't see anything anywhere. I didn't see anything from Vibe. I didn't see anything from Rolling Stone. I didn't see anything anywhere. Matter of fact, the only article that I saw uh, even addressing... Again, I think I talked about this last episode. The only, th- only article I saw addressing uh, New Edition at all had to go with the angle of them, you know, the drama between them and, and them possibly breaking up. And that's the only reason it got addressed. Another reason why I'm doing this episode is because on the 26th, I started seeing people online talking about it being the 30th anniversary of the release of uh, Coming to America. Eddie Murphy's um, film with uh, Arsenio Hall coming to America. It wasn't. 
people started asking me on Twitter. It was like, yo, is this right? No, it's not right. The 30th anniversary would be tomorrow because the movie was released June 29th, 1988. I know this for a fact because it was released directly the week after uh, Disney released Who Framed Roger Rabbit on June 22nd, 1988. How do I know that? Because my brothers and I went to the film the opening night it released. And I know that Coming to America was released the week after. Now, as far as research is concerned, in order for you to do accurate research, it helps to have memories like I do. So I actually remember everything that happened in 88. And I remember the summer 88 like the back of my hand. But the the crucial part is that you have to care enough to do the, to do this meticulous research. And in order to and the first part of doing research is that you have to familiarize yourself with the subject matter. All right. So let me break down how all this shit is happening and people are getting the shit wrong. People are getting this stuff wrong because when they check for sources, basically what they do is they Google. And when they Google, the first thing that pops up in Google searches is typically Wikipedia or the other sources take their take their information from Wikipedia or the source on Wikipedia is inaccurate and ends up on Wikipedia through these other sources. It's a real weird thing. It's a real weird. It's a vicious cycle. So typically, if you're a young uh, journalist, a writer, a reporter, and you go to Google something and your first source, you go to Wikipedia, you see that source and it says June 28th, then you check another source. But you don't realize that that source got its information from Wikipedia or whoever put that information on Wikipedia didn't know where to go to search properly. And they got their erroneous information. So you're just reading two or three different sites that gave you the same wrong information. So to you, you've confirmed it. Yes, June 28th is the date. Now, I'm old. I was of record buying age. I was of film going to age because it was the PG-13 era. And of course, I ran around with people who were anywhere between four to six years older than me all the time. So that means that I was privy to a lot of things that people in my normal age range wouldn't be. So if I'm 13, 14, that means that I'm not only going around with people older than me, but also people that are in college. Now, this changes everything in terms of research and knowing stuff that you're not supposed to know and having a wider range available for you for your knowledge base. Now, back to doing research and being accurate and knowing the subject matter. First thing you need to understand is that there are release dates in every field. That goes across the board. But here's the thing with release dates. In every field, they also have metrics or numbers, right? So they have to rate everything. In the, in the film industry, everything goes off the box office. The box office take. So every week, you get the next box office take. For the music industry, you're dealing with Billboard and the RIAA. Okay? Now... In the case of the RIAA and Billboard, albums are usually released on Tuesdays. 
Now you have to remember that before we got to the sound scan era, it was a lot more liberal. So yes, albums would typically release on a Tuesday, but they didn't always release on Tuesday. Sometimes they'd release on a Monday. Depending on who the distributor was of the label, sometimes they would release on a Friday. Columbia was notorious for releasing albums on Fridays. They, there were several albums on Columbia that were released on Fridays, and they entered the charts really high. Why? Because the charts come out in Billboard, because Billboard magazine came out on Saturday. Now, all of you are out there like, wait a minute. So albums release on Tuesday, usually. Sometimes they could release on a Monday, or they could release on a Friday. But the Billboard charts came out on a Saturday. The reason why I'm repeating this is because if you don't understand this basic concept, you're already fucked in terms of research. Now, something else you also need to understand. The reason why the charts came out on S Saturday is because it corresponded with a TV show that used to come on on Saturday. Casey Kasem's Countdown. Casey Kasem would count down the top albums. So if you didn't go out and buy Billboard yourself and you were just a kid or a regular layperson, you found out the charts in your home. On the same day, you would watch Soul Train and American Bandstand right after it. And Casey Kasem did the countdown. This Casey Kasem countdown is how I found out that New Edition finally entered the top 10 on Billboard. Because we got a phone call that they were going to be on. And we, my brothers and I and my sister, watched and we saw New Edition on the motherfucking countdown for Candy Girl. blew our minds now depending on how old you are you weren't old enough to have watched the Casey Kasem countdown or billboard coming out on Saturday will mean nothing to you that's unfortunate because it's kind of something you need to know because you have to understand that billboards charts coming out on Saturday motivated record labels and distributors to release albums on certain dates now, what you also need to understand is that if you give your album more time before the charts come out for it, before it enters the charts, it enters the charts higher. You want the highest possible entry for your album on the charts. Are you following me? Good. Now, the same concept works in film. You want to have your film the highest it possibly can be on the charts in the box office so you can advertise it as the number one film in America. If you haven't noticed, a lot of times people, the number one film in America, the number one comedy in America, the number one horror film in America, the number one horror film in America could be the number five film in America, the number one comedy in America could be the number four movie in America. Because the top three could be, could be another genre entirely. But the important thing is to be the number one film in America. And you know why? Because when these, album, when these movies came out, I'm talking right now about uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and um, Coming to America. When these films came out, 
You want it to be the number one film in America, hopefully going into and retaining it throughout the July 4th holiday. Now, charts come out on Friday in the film industry. That would be July 1st, then July 8th. But as you well know, they track weekends in the film industry. And they report weekend takes. Actually, the report takes off on every day. Why? Because holiday weekends are huge for studios. These are bragging rights that you want to have. And if you haven't been paying attention, Coming to America was released on June 29th, which would have given it sales on June 29th, the 30th, and then the 1st, which would have been the Friday. And those three days are all you need to report for the weekend. And guess what? Coming to America was the number one film in America. And it was the number one film in America over the holiday weekend. And it was the number one film in America in the July, on July 8th. So that means that it took number one those two weeks. Do you know what was the number one film before Coming to America took over the charts? Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was released on the 22nd, a Wednesday. So it could have a full three days in the box office tallied so it could take the top spot. But it wanted to be to have the top spot so it can advertise as having the top spot because it more than likely knew that the new Eddie Murphy movie coming out on Paramount was going to have the top spot for a while. Or maybe they thought if they gave themselves a, a head start of a week, that maybe they might be able to overtake Eddie Murphy's coming to America and have number one going to the holiday weekend had to take that chance. But this brings it back to. So why did people say that it was um, the release date online was the 26th? If you do a cursory search on your phone and you look up Coming to America, I realized that the first thing you see is June 26th. But if you press it and go deeper, you'll see the Wikipedia date actually says June 29th. It looks like it was changed. Because if you check IMDB, it says June 29th. But here's the thing. There's another site called the numbers, the dash numbers.com. And what the numbers does is a crucial site. It gives you release dates. It gives you uh, wide releases. It gives you the soft release date of if it had a premiere. It tells you how many theaters it was in. And it tells you the take after each week. Three days, 10 days, 17 days, 24 days, 31 days. It tells you how many theaters it was in, for God's sake. It gives you all the information you need so that you know that the information that you're, that you're looking at is accurate. This is a crucial tool if you're going to look up anything. And it's sad because there are a lot of people that don't know which resources they should check out for anything. So people that were going online saying, just running with it because they saw somebody tweet it. Oh, today's the 30th anniversary. And then everybody's going down the Twitter timeline. This is like a virus. And everybody talking about, oh, yo, I remember the first time I saw um, coming to America. And I went to the theater and actually you're wrong because you couldn't have done it today because it came out on the 29th. And I have to tell everybody they're wrong. And then I have to go through my fucking timeline and I have to bring up information and I have to. I have to bring up sources and I have to screenshot stuff. And then everybody's like, oh, well, damn, my bad. Guess I was wrong. 
I have to do all this work because people can't do simple shit like search for information and find it right there in your face. But now I'm going to talk about something that's just annoying today, right? So, of course, I mentioned earlier today, people are saying it's the 30th anniversary of public enemy. It takes a nation of millions to hold this back. Like people that are reputable, but they're also saying that today is the 30th anniversary of Long Live the Cane's release. It isn't. Long Live the Cane was released on June 21st, 1988, on Warner Brothers, the same day that Warner Brothers Tommy Boy released Stetsasonics in full gear. I heard both these albums all throughout summer school in 1988. To further frustrate me, if you go on Wikipedia and look up the release date for uh, MC Light's Eyes on, I mean, I, um, Light is a Rock, it has this being September 13th. It wasn't. It was definitely released sometime in June. But that's neither here nor there, right? Fucking Wikipedia. But I'm going to break down exactly how you can tell that June 28th, 1988 is not definitively not the release date for it takes a nation of millions to hold us back or big daddy canes long live the cane okay first thing you need to understand about um the charts right in order to enter the charts you need to have anywhere between i believe 10 to 14 full days of sales before you can enter the charts whether it be the um top black albums charts or the um, Billboard 200 for a debut. The reason is because the charts come out a week ahead. It's the same concept behind if you take if you get a job, you have to work two weeks before you get your first check. Are you with me? Okay. You quit a job, you still have a check coming. You with me? All right. You, Ten to fourteen full days of sales. Before you finally enter the charts. If for any reason they can't properly tabulate your um, your sales or calculate your sales, you won't enter until the next week. But when you do enter that week, you're going to have all your sales be accurate and you're going to enter the charts when you should. Now, if you want to have a, a a different release date, you have to realize that that's going to affect where you enter the charts. If your release date is going to be a Monday instead of a Tuesday, it means you have another you have an extra day of sales. If you release your album on a Friday, that means that you're going to come out on the next charts because you need those extra days. But the thing is that if you start your cycle on a Friday instead of a Tuesday, then actually you have Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Four days of sales before the next cycle begins. As opposed to being behind, you're ahead. Are you following me? Okay. So this also means that if you release your album on a Friday, it's going to drop. It's going to enter the charts the week or the, the week after somebody who released their album on a, t- on a normal Tuesday. Okay. I repeat. If somebody released their album on a Tuesday and you released your album on that Friday, 
You're not going to debut on the charts until the next week after they debut on the Billboard charts. For example, let's say that Big Daddy Kane's Long Live the Kane actually was released on June 21st, 1988. If it was released on June 21st, 1988, then all the albums that were released on June 21st, 1988 will all enter the Billboard charts and debut on the Billboard charts provided they all sold enough to enter the Billboard charts, whether it be the um, top black albums or the um, Billboard 200, on the same day. Why? Because they had the equal amount of days of, se- of, of sales. Same amount of days of sales. So, Public Enemy's album did not come out on the 28th. It actually came out June 24th on a Friday. So that meant that it was going to enter the Billboard charts as a debut the next Billboard issue or the week after whenever Big Daddy Kane's album came out. Again, if they were both released on the same day, both on a major label, Warner Brothers and Columbia, they both would have had the same sales days. So they would have entered the Billboard charts and debuted on the same week. Not only that, but as we know, Public Enemy's album sold way more than Big Daddy Kane's album. Big Daddy Kane's album took like a year to go gold. Public Enemy's album went gold in like three months. Then it went platinum. So that means that if they were both released on the 28th, if I check the records, they should both enter and debut on the Billboard charts the same week. And not only that, Public Enemy should enter the charts way ahead. Of Big Daddy Kane's album on the same week. So let's check the numbers. I did research and I checked. Big Daddy Kane's Long Live the Kane debuts on Billboard in the Billboard charts, both on the top black albums and um, the Hot 200 on July 16th, 1988. On July 16, 1988 on Billboard, it debuts at number 44 on the top black albums. Now, the top black albums list goes to 75. So it enters at 44 on July 16th. Public Enemy's album's nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. Not on the charts. But if they came out on the same day, how come, not, how come both of them didn't debut at the same time? So I checked the uh, Hot 200 charts. July 16th, 1988. Big Daddy Kane's Long Live the Kane enters the um, Hot 200 at 188. I don't see Public Enemy anywhere. And Public Enemy should be significantly higher because Public Enemy sold a lot more records. I know that for a fact because numbers. Now, I checked the charts the next week. Now, this week... I fully expect to see Public Enemy and Big Daddy Kane both on the charts. And lo and behold, what do I see? June 23rd. Top Black Albums. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. His debuted at number 32. And what do I see right behind it? Number 33, having moved up 11 spots from last week. 
Big Daddy Kane's Long Live the Kane. Hmm. That's interesting. So they're both on the charts, one from each other, but one wasn't on the charts the week before. Eh, let's let's check another chart. Hot 200. July 23rd, 1988. Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold This Back on um, Def Jam Columbia debuts on the July 23rd, 1988 Hot 200 at number 79. I scroll down those same charts and I see Big Daddy Kane's Long Live the Kane all the way down at 172. It had moved up 16 spots from last week. So, what does that tell us? That tells us definitively that there's no way Public Enemies It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold This Back and Big Daddy Kane's Long Live the Kane came out on the same day. One had four days of sales behind the other one and still entered the charts ahead of it. Why? Because Big Daddy Kane's Long Live the Kane actually came out on June 21st, 1988. And Public Enemies It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold This Back actually came out June 24th, 1988 on a Friday. Just like George Michael's Faith came out on a Friday. (sighs) Now, there's nothing that annoys me more than knowing all you have to do is do the research I just did. And you would have found this out for yourself. I didn't spend any money to find that out. There's two ways to do that. One, you have to go to a library or something like that and find a billboard from 1988. Or you could have just been lazy and just searched the website. I prefer to do the analog one because sometimes you don't get full information from the um, website because the website, I told you, it cuts off the top black albums at 50 when it should be 75. Billboard needs to do something about that. And it's sad because the only person who would be care enough to tell Billboard, yo, y'all need to go the full charts. It's only 75 for black music because you're doing it a disservice for anybody who wants to do research. And that's the only reason anybody would do that. I mean, would, would actually use your charts for research. And you're really putting a black eye on everything and you're doing a disservice to an entire community of uh, music writers, especially young people that have no fucking clue that there's a chart, there's part of the chart missing. The bottom third of the chart chart is missing. The only people that are going to care about that is me because I know the importance of it. But yeah, I mean, I'm somebody who also had to endure seeing. And here's another thing. Artists don't know when the albums came out. A lot of times artists are on tour artists are out doing stuff. They're concerned with other things other than exactly when the album comes out. All they know is their album's out. They're doing press runs. They're doing tours and stuff like that. So a lot of times they don't have full knowledge. And plus, they're busy. So uh, last year, somebody told... 
Ice T on Twitter that it was the 30th anniversary of Ryan Pays coming out or something like that. And he was like, yo, and I had to tell him, I was like, actually, they're wrong. Your album actually came out the day before um, or the same day as Eric B and Rakim's paid in full. He had no clue. I showed him evidence. Screenshots. He didn't know. Why would he know? Everybody doesn't know. So another thing happened with D-Nice uh, went on Instagram and and Twitter and was talking about today's the 30th anniversary of uh, <laughs> Boogie Down Productions um, by any means necessary. And so people were talking about, yo, I love that album. And this and running. I was like, uh, it came out either on April 12th or April 19th. And I can prove it. So I go on I go on Twitter and I pull up all this stuff, all this information where it entered the charts. And I also have the day it peaked. It peaked three days before y'all are saying that it first came out. I'm pretty sure KRS-One did not have a motherfucking time machine. I know he did not have a flux capacitor. He probably had enough road to go to 85, but I doubt he had a DeLorean. And I know he ain't have no plutonium. So it's not possible for your album to come out when it's already peaked on Billboard three days before the day it first came out. It's impossible. And I put this on Twitter and I put it on Instagram. And there's a there's a semi-famous uh, Instagram Instagrammer uh, who did this uh, 30th anniversary album giveaway. Like since it's the 30th anniversary of this album, I'm giving it away. And I'm in the Instagram comments like the album came out in April. And that comment got like 30 hearts or whatever the fuck. I'm not sure it's still there. Probably got deleted. But they still went through with it anyway. Because it's like Liberty Valence. If you have a legend and a fact, you print the legend. We live in a society where perception is painted by things other than fact. People love biopics more than reading the actual story. And biopics based on a true story might as well just be an original story because it's pretty much just fucking fabrication, fabrication, fabrication after fabrication. As a historian, I'm telling you this is frustrating. If you watch any historical movie, I'm using air quotes, just assume you know nothing about what happened. I'm somebody who knows these stories inside and out and people like, yo, so you're going to go see the movie? I'm like, I already know I'm going to be mad watching the movie. Why? Because I'm a historian. Historians, being a historian means that you're going to be mad all the time. You're going to be frustrated all the time. You're going to be disappointed all the time because nothing's accurate. And I'm as a writer, I, I, I'm well versed in the art of adaptation. I know some things aren't going to work on film. I know some things you have to alter. I know some things you have to change. I accept that. But a lot of the things that people change and switch around 
and a lot of the things that people use and they amalgamate people and do all this stuff, it's unnecessary and it doesn't make sense because they're looking at it from a screenwriter's or audience perspective without thinking about the history side or the accuracy side. So you can minimize this damage that you're doing. When I write something, I want it so that you go and search and you find out, oh, shit, that happened. That actually happened. That did happen. And then you find out more about it. It makes you want to go deeper. The way things are now, especially with history, you pretty much go and search for the story and find out that 15% of what you saw on screen actually happened. And then you're like, this sounds crazy. Like, this is dope. How come they didn't put that in the movie? I don't want that to be the case with journalism. I understand that since today is um, Thursday, you can do releases and you can do stuff and you can engage people and you can have all the attention you want saying, yo, this album dropped on this date, but it didn't. It didn't. It didn't happen. The anniversary is the 24th. The real danger is going forward. All those sites and all these people that like the to on this date, this happened. And they print the wrong fucking date year after year after year after year. Even after I'm telling you and bringing information and facts in your face, motherfucker is wrong. You need to care about accuracy. You need to care about facts. But based on what's happening in the journalism field and in this space, nobody cares. And of course, it's bottom down. It's top up, whatever the fuck you want to call it. But it all has to do with economics. If it was profitable to be accurate and portray certain things in the right light and get the date right. And it was cool for all these Instagram accounts and IG accounts and sites to get their get everything correct and to finally get the resources together so that people who aren't me can actually research these things and have the necessary tools to find them easier. But first they'd have to care to. Then we wouldn't be in this fucking predicament that we're in right now. Okay. So I'm pretty sure I've bored everybody to death. But also I want to say that one of the things I really wanted to do with this uh, podcast is I wanted to make it so that it made sense for the modern era. Uh, We're in a time where you have to adapt or die. Um, And this has happened in every field of media so far. A lot of people pivoted the video, which was stupid because as I pointed out in several articles that I wrote, It didn't make sense to pivot the video when what you're doing is you're taking something from being written by someone that was sometimes long form, sometimes short form, firing that person, then getting somebody pretty and put in front of a camera, hiring people to film them, and then you have to hire somebody else to write copy for them to read. So you're going to put up content, I'm using air quotes, with a person reading For you. Shit you could have read yourself. But you just don't have to click on it. Now you have to watch it on YouTube. 
and see this cute person read it. That makes no fucking sense. You could have just kept the people who write and had them write that shit. And the thing about pivoting the video is that it didn't generate the income that they hoped it would. So you fire people to try to slim down to this model. This model doesn't make you any money. So now you still have to um, let more people go. So you look like a dick. And you were wrong. But I told you you were wrong before. Now I'm right. But guess what? There's a whole bunch of people laid off on Twitter saying, hey, uh, if you know of an opening, but there are no fucking openings. And then there are a lot of people that ask me all the time. It's like, how do you know all this stuff? Well, let me hip you to something, fam. Um, uh, I've been a writer online since 2002. In this space, I've been writing since 2006. So eh, the last 12 years, if we go anniversaries by fives, that meant that something that's happening now, that it's the 30th anniversary, I wrote shit for its 25th and 20th anniversaries already. Boom. So I already know when the dates are because I already did this fucking research. The only difference is when I did the research, there was a wider base of people to get paid for writing these type of articles. And not only that, there were a lot of people who were still in the game because they hadn't left yet to get other jobs because they realized that this what there was no fucking money going forward in this. Or they got offered a job that was had a living wage and they had kids and rent in New York or wherever the fuck they lived. A lot of those people are out the game now or they moved up to another job or they moved into another field. Like, do you have any idea how many think about all the people that used to be on your timeline on Twitter or used to be on your IG from five to ten years ago. Are they all still in the same space they were before? Do they all occupy the same jobs they had before? No. I think of everybody who was working at certain magazines, certain networks, certain websites, certain media conglomerates. A lot of people that used to do PR and in, in, in the um, entertainment field. A lot of those people have moved on and gone into other spaces and done different shit. There are very few people that are still around and are still, you know, constants doing the same thing. If they haven't jumped from job to job to job to job to job. Because it's pretty much musical chairs. But that being the case... If you're a writer and the money's dried up and the interest is dried up, I remember last year I was trying to uh, pitch something about writing a bunch of anniversaries, 20th anniversary pieces for albums, crucial albums that came out in 1997, highly influential underground albums that came out in 1997. Uh, someone used a word or a phrase to me that I hadn't seen used in media, in business, yes. But not in media. legacy content. Legacy content. Fuck it. I was writing for um UGHH. I was trying to write for UGHH. UGHH is a store that I felt personally attached to because it was in my neighborhood. Been there since 1997, 96-97. And I used to go there. I mean, I used to hang out with those guys. Used to go to shows at the Middle East, the Western Front. All the shit happened at Bill's Bar, you know, 
back when Playhouse was was existed, all these other things, to see all these people hang out at Biscuit Head Records, uh, back when we had Newberry and and we had like Tower Records was across the street. You still had uh, Daddy's Junkie, Daddy's Junkie Music. You had the EU Wurlitzer that across the street where people used to buy equipment uh, around on um, Berkeley. So a lot of the underground Boston. New England, Massachusetts, hip-hop scene were associated. So I wanted to write pieces that spoke to the core fan base of people who used to be on the UGHH boards. You know? Because to me, that made sense. But I was met with, eh, we don't want to do that. That would make sense. And UGHH is doing too well right now. I can't say I'm surprised. So, it was then that I realized nobody going forward is going to want to pay for the shit that we write. Because you also have to think about this. Think of all the work the research, the writing, the rewriting, the editing, the man hours that you put into one article, one article which may take 10 to 20 minutes out of somebody's life to read. Okay? Think about that. Now, put a price tag on doing that once. Now, this is your job. This is your livelihood. You have to do that again and again and again and again and again. And the worst part is in a shrinking world or shrinking space where you're seeing those type of articles less and less and less. You have to think to yourself, is it worth it to keep doing this shit or running into a brick wall? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result or outcome. So, Dart, why are you still writing about music and the culture, the actual culture, not the culture quotation marks, the actual fucking culture of black music, of hip hop? Of R&B, of soul, of media in general, pop culture. Why do you keep doing this shit when it's clear you're not going to be able to sell this shit to anybody? Well, because there are these things called documentaries. And then there's this thing called lecturing. And then there are these things called books. There's always going to be another way for you to use this knowledge. There's always going to be another way for you to share it with people. I still get phone calls. I still get people wanting to have meetings. I got several meetings this week. And for that reason, that's why this podcast is going to go in seasons, just like a Netflix series. Think about it. One of my favorite Netflix series right now is a one called uh, Travelers. It's had two seasons so far, right? I believe it's either 10 or 13 episodes per season. Each episode is so packed 
with information and just stuff happening. And there's so many layers and different scenes have different connotations. And it doesn't make sense till the season's over. And then it makes even more sense when the next season happens where you could go back after you've seen one episode. Like, oh, shit, that happened. Season one, episode seven. It's like reading comic books. Issue number 27 alludes to something that happened in issue 15. So there's this continuum. And you have fallen in and you've conceded and you've suspended belief. And sometimes some episodes, you don't like them as much as some other episodes. But they're still crucial to the continuum. It's necessary. You've seen it once. You might not like it. You might want to skip it. That's totally fine. Shit, I love Altered Carbon. But for me, my favorite episode of Altered Carbon is episode number seven. I watched episode seven more than any other episode of Altered Carbon. But I love the whole series. There are people that love The Wire. But they don't really like season two. But season two is crucial because if you skip season two or skip around on season two, you don't understand what the fuck's happening going on in certain key areas of the ep- of the show. You can always tell when you're talking to somebody who watched The Wire, who asks a question in season four. Yo, what's this happening? Who, who, who are these people? What are they talking about? Oh, you didn't fully watch season two. You skipped around in season two, didn't you? Yeah, it was boring. Well, motherfucker, this is what you get. It's like in math. There's a lot of boring shit that you got to sit through in math. There are a lot of theories, a lot of formulas and stuff that you have to sit around and learn and get down to math. Because when it's time to do certain other parts of the book later on, other chapters, if you paid attention back in chapter four, chapter nine is not going to be that hard for you. Chapter 10 is going to be a breeze. All you had to do was buckle down in chapter four and this should be easier. It's like if you paid attention in practice, you wouldn't be getting scored on by the motherfucker that the coach was trying to set you up to defend or to neutralize. Same principle. So again, I wanted to do this like seasons. Why? Because when a season's over, And now the full body of work is out. People can talk about it online. You know, people can spread it through word of mouth. You can discover it now without feeling like you're going to be behind. It's like a comic book where everybody's talking about it. It's on issue 38. But damn, now you got to read fucking... How many five or six different trade paperbacks just to catch up to now? That's a daunting task. If a TV show is in its sixth season, do you know how long it's going to take for you to catch up? And the thing is that it might not take as long as you think it would. But the thing is that you're up against it. You get through season two and you're still like, God damn, I saw four more seasons to go. This way, after 13, after episode 13. I take a break. I do some other stuff. You can revisit episodes you want to. You could listen to it at your leisure. By the time everybody's done with these 13 episodes or found their favorites or talked about it or whatever, it's time for another season. So everybody doesn't feel like 
I need to hurry up and listen to episode this and this, this and, and go past it and hurry it up. So I'm actually catching up to what Dart's doing now. You don't have to do that. You got time. I can do this shit all day. I could do this shit all week. But the thing is, y'all can't. I'm doing this episode right now. It's 8.55 a.m. I didn't sleep. I did nothing but write and research and fucking walked around Boston, watched some films, listened to some albums. This is shit that hasn't come out yet. Demos, beat tapes, a whole bunch of stuff. This is my everyday thing. But I realize that not everybody can catch up to this nonstop thing that I can do. All this, all this stuff, all this stuff I can consume. That's not what everyone else could do. So I get to take a break from it. And another thing is that people are scared that if they disappear for a while, or they don't do something for a while, that all of a sudden, like the audience goes away. No, dumbass. A lot of times the audience grows. Because now they actually have time to digest it on their own. And now it actually has an opportunity to grow organically. There's too many times I consult for people and they talk to me and they ask me questions about, yo, um, should this be this long? Because, you know, people stop watching after what bullshit. If people sit down and watch a movie or watch or binge entire Netflix series, then you really believe that if your YouTube video is over five minutes, people will stop watching. Motherfuckers will watch until they don't want to watch anymore for something they like. You don't have to tell somebody, yo, subscribe and click notifications. If someone really wants to see what you do and they love it, they'll do that anyway. Okay? There's nothing that bothers me more than on Twitter. Somebody's fucking post a tweet goes viral and they're like, yo, hit up my Instagram and this and this. Look, people will do that anyway. If you're on fucking Twitter or Instagram and you see and you see somebody or something that interests you, you're going to immediately search for them on all socials and go down and do whatever you want without being prompted, without being told. It's the circle of life. The shit happened before social media is going to happen with social media. So too often we're afraid that if we don't put out content constantly, that people will forget about us. Ain't nobody forgetting about me, goddammit. I ain't die. My fucking Twitter's still active. My Instagram's active. I don't use anything else because I'm old and I don't give a fuck about anything else. I don't take pictures of myself. If I tweet, I tweet about a whole fucking range of stuff, a range of things, not just one thing. But you know I'm still alive. And pretty much if you follow me on Twitter or read things I actually write, which sometimes still go on Medium because no one's paying for it. But thank God they do it in other places. I'm still putting out stuff with um for Boston. We did the in-store for the uh, 
Patrick Ewing, Cambridge Ringe and Latin, uh, 1978 to 1981 jersey. Uh, if you've been on Instagram, I'm pretty sure you've seen several people, prominent people, uh, with theirs. Uh, salute Static Selector. Salute on um, Brady. Nice on the base. Um, salute G Spin. A whole bunch of folks, you know, and uh, all of the cats that did pre-orders. Um, yo, thank you, Shaka. I appreciate that, man. Um, we go way back to the Tower Record days. Um, uh, salute Cormega. So, the new joints that we're putting out now is we just did the pre-release for um, the pre-order for uh, the Reggie Lewis Northeastern jersey. The one we're doing right now, which is going to run into the end of the week, is the Dredrick Irving Boston University joint. So it's the number 11 that he got retired at Boston University. Four-year uh, four player at um, as a Boston University Terrier. He used to have to go up against Reggie Lewis from 1984 to 1987. In 1988, he led his team to the NCAA tournament. They played Duke in the first round. And um, North Carolina's um, Carrier Dome. Uh, what was it? March? March something. March 17th? March 17th, 1988? Yeah. Again, I remember everything. I do nothing but research, right? That's why I can pull out all these facts and all this information and stuff like that. But it's not my first rodeo. I had to compete with people who had to do the same thing. So that they could get jobs. How am I going to get a job over someone else who people know and has a name as someone who was a blogger and came out of writing about basketball and sports? Yeah, my first jobs in journalism online. Between 2002 and 2005, I was a basketball writer. I covered every beat from NBA, college, streetball, the Rucker. Drew League, the Baker League, Summer League, NBA Summer League. Those are regular Summer Leagues. I used to write about uh, the Nautic, the YBA. I used to do uh, player creation for uh, NBA Live back in the day. So when you did a creator player... I would give you the stats in the face. People go online looking for my shit. I've been doing this for a long time. Research is my life. I am a historian because I care about accuracy and I care about the the depiction and the future of music in general. Look, man, I'm just going to tell you like this. In rock, you can't do things. Like you can get a, you can you can't do things and get away with them like you can, in in the space of black music journalism. You can't fuck up release dates. They'll have your head. They'll print retractions. They'll apologize profusely. Do you know that rock journalists know the day, the exact day, that Paul McCartney met John Lennon? Like think about that. Do we know the day or do we care enough to try to track down the possible date that Q-Tip first met Fife? 
Is it that important? No, it absolutely isn't. Think about, as something is frustrating to me, how few album release dates we know from the early, from the golden era. 1986 to 1989. But in rock, they even know the dates people entered the studio. They know the date somebody put out a, a double A-side 7-inch and there was something, there was an error on the label. They care that much. In May 1973, it was the first meeting of rock writers. Okay? I believe they all went to, was it Tennessee? For Memorial Day weekend, all these rock writers from all these different magazines, whether they be fanzines, official magazines, newsletters, all congregated in one place to see a group called Big Star perform. Because Big Star were media darlings. They were the a favorite of rock critics and rock writers. Okay, that's why the TV show, the TV show on HBO Vinyl was set in 1973, because 1973 was such a pivotal year for music. Okay, I could recite chapter and verse names of crucial rock journalism magazines from 1968 on through the 70s. Why? Because when I first got into journalism. And music journalism especially, this is what I studied. And you know why I studied it? Because there was really no history to follow that was respected or revered as such for black music journalism. There just wasn't. Outside of maybe a few jazz writers, you know, shit, did, shit was in downbeat. You think right on Cynthia Horner at right on? You think people were clamoring for right on's uh, hard hitting music reporting? They regarded it as a fanzine. Go read album reviews. Oh, who am I fucking talking to? But if you can find them, read album reviews from the 75, 76, 77, 78, 79. And write on. I'm telling you this from memory because I read them over my big sister's shoulder, over my big brother's shoulder. Okay? They were not critical. However, when I grew up and I started reading rock critics and them tearing into somebody for a lifeless, limp album or sounding too much like Bowie or not taking enough chances. But then when I got older and I read these same rock critics destroy rap because they don't understand it and they don't get it, it took on a different feeling altogether. So this is going to be the last episode of Dart Against Humanity for a while, but you will be okay.
I'll be back when I'm back. Whatever, motherfuckers. <laughs>